with the wide adoption of social media and people having or becoming accustomed to having a voice and having a say as to how they want to interact with the brand and what they want the brand to communicate, um, we've changed that dynamic. And so brands are now still, even seven years into social media being you know widespread um, and used in the market, you still have brands struggling with well, how do I control my brand story and my brand message? And the bottom line is you can't. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for joining us today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from the great state of Massachusetts, where winter has never quite found us this year, I'm happy to say. Well, this is Craig Williams from beautiful, sunny, and warm Southern California. A little bit windy today, but uh, winter hasn't found us either, Bob. Uh, although the elections, <laughs> the elections seem to have uh, gotten in the way. So yes. anyway, plenty uh, of hot air to go around, I guess. Oh, no kidding, especially on this show. Um, <laughs> I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court, have a book out called How to Get Sued, and we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, web-based practice management program for lawyers, goclio.com, and PC Law by LexisNexis. For a free trial, you can go to pclaw.com slash radio. Bob, I know you write some blogs. Uh, that's right. I write a blog called Law Sites, uh, where I cover you know, legal technology uh, and uh, the legal web, and also media law, where I write about media law. Well, we're going to have some discussion of that, but a different kind of media today. And if you've got a great story to tell and want to get as much public attention as possible, releasing your creation on just one media platform is probably not the best strategy today. According to many successful story creators, the way to grab the public's attention is through story world communities and transmedia. Uh, and transmedia and story world communities may not be uh, well-known or widely known terms, but... Uh they are certainly well-known in many tech and media-savvy circles. Uh, this week, uh, well, starting in just a couple of days uh, at South by Southwest in, in uh, Austin, Texas, one of the topics that's going to be taken up there uh, is, is this very one, transmedia and story world communities. And in fact, uh, Craig, you and uh, I guess uh, both of our guests today are doing a panel down there. Yeah, Bob, I, I really have the pleasure of presenting today with today's guests at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. There are going to be some discussions about intellectual property, copyright, creation rights associated with story worlds and transmedia. So let's bring in our guests. First up, let me introduce Esther Lim. She is the founder and chief experience architect at the Estuary. Estuary is a digital marketing agency working with Fortune 500 brands to develop new forms of multi-platform, interactive engagement, social media, and community programs. She's also the executive director of Digital Experience at George P. Johnson. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Esther. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And also joining us today is Scott Walker. Scott is the president of the, of the wonderfully named uh, firm Brain Candy, where he crafts participatory experiences that bridge audiences and creatives. Scott also co-founded Transmedia Los Angeles and launched Share Story Worlds, which is a site devoted to collaborative entertainment properties with participatory elements. Welcome to Legal Talk Network, Scott. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. 
Well, Esther, let's let's start with this. Um, you know, Bob and I are probably pretty stodgy attorneys, and I'm sure that the rest of our listeners are out there probably know what we're talking about. But for those that don't, can you explain what Story World communities are? Story World communities are the um, fan base that content creators build around their uh, IP, and generally, that fan base. Um, are a group of people who are very passionate about the story and the world that that story lives in. And so when the content creator puts out that story and creates a community around it, that's, that forms what we call the story world. And that world can encompass a lot of things, including a period in time. Uh, it could be a sci-fi fiction genre. It could be a uh, real-world genre where it's happening in today's world. Um, nonetheless, it's a place where people can come, share in experiencing the, the story experience and the storytelling, contribute by telling their own version of the stories or building sub-arcs around content and creative and character, um, and have dialogue about the story. So it's really a community, but it's also a community built around the story itself. And, and Scott, what is transmedia and how does it differ from story world communities? Uh, well, and how do they relate to one another? Well, the short answer for me, humbly, is that I don't know that we actually have a definition yet. I think we're still trying to figure out what this practice called transmedia storytelling is. Clearly, the practice predates the term by decades. We've been creating and experiencing what we call now today transmedia or multi-platform experiences for decades. We've just only recently begun to assign a handle or a term to it. So far, 99% of the transmedia experiences that I've seen have been multi-platform in nature, multimedia in nature. They are the splitting of a single story across platforms and mediums or the collection and the integrated dispersal of a collection of stories that share a common world across multiple platforms and across multiple media. And transmedia is distinguished from, for example, uh, what's often referred to as just simply porting content, where you take a movie and you write a novelization where the story doesn't change, or you take a novel and adapt it into a movie where the story and the characters don't change. That's not storytelling. Uh, transmedia is storytelling. Transmedia is about having multiple stories or multiple parts of the same story dispersed in an integrated way across multiple platforms. For shared story worlds, and this is where my focus comes in, I look at a very particular kind of a shared story world where it's an IP that's created with a commercial or non-commercial foundation where there's an explicit invitation for audiences to come participate. And so far, I haven't seen many transmedia experiences where they're explicitly inviting audiences to contribute official content back. And for me, that's the distinction between, say, a transmedia experience and what I'm calling a shared story world where artists and audiences are actually co-creating, working together, collaborating to produce and explore that, that official world, the official IP within that entertainment experience. Well, I wonder, uh, Esther, if I could uh, turn to you. I mean, you're you're uh, a, a, a transmedia producer, and as Craig said, a, a lot of our audience is legal professionals, and, and this still may be a, a new concept to a lot of the people who are listening to today's show. Can you can you give me an example? I mean, can you describe to me uh, perhaps a, a, tr a transmedia production that you've been involved in? Um, I've been in a transmedia production or a subset of one uh, called an alternate reality game. And um, some would argue there's a great debate in the industry right now about whether alternate reality games are transmedia or a subset of. And I would say that I'm in the camp that says it's a subset of. And what that means is we based, uh, we created a story uh, where we introduced a product and it was in a uh, 
business-to-business model, and we introduce characters that our audience, the customers or the buyers of that product, um, seem to like and gravitate towards. And so for the purpose of the story, they followed the characters, and they helped the characters uncover mysteries or challenges that would reveal more story so that you could help figure out the 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 mystery that the characters were trying to solve. So in the case that we, in, in the, uh, in the case of the project that I worked on, which was for Sun Microsystems, um, it was for a product launch. The story was following two paranormal, uh, investigators who had a theory about, um, the world in terms of every time a new technology is introduced, there's a visitation. Now we chose a particular genre within sci-fi because we understood that our, buyers and customers were um, big sci-fi fans, and so we knew that they would immediately um, gravitate towards the story, be interested in enough to follow it, and through following the story, um, were exposed to the product and uh, were taught how to use the product because they were helping the characters um, build certain devices, video, audio components that would then reveal more parts of the story. Now, the story was then distributed across multiple platforms. So it played out on what we call a primary plot story platform, which was the microsite. And the microsite was built on the product itself so that it could demonstrate the features and capabilities of what the product could do. Um, however, pieces of the story or elements of the story and, and um, sub-stories around certain characters happened across different platforms, such as mobile or audio or video, and they were distributed across social platforms as well, um, and, and also in sort of printed books and photographs. So in this way, the story was broken up across different mediums, told separate sub-stories about the characters or particular scene that was happening in the overarching story. And people were brought into the story from these different platforms. So you might have encountered a piece of the story through the mobile app, or you might have encountered a piece of the story through the video on YouTube, or you might have come into it because you stumbled across the website, which gave sort of a synopsis of what was happening and lured you in enough that you would start to play and, and share along with the uncovery of what happened with the characters. Uh, so that's an example of a transmedia slash alternate reality game um, that utilizes this type of multi-platform narrative approach. Well, it sounds it sounds uh, somewhat exhausting. <laughs> For how does how do you engage the user? I mean, is the user engaging uh, themselves with across these multiple platforms, or are you somehow getting information from the user that allows you to to sort of push this out to them across multiple platforms? Scott, let's throw that question to you. Uh, well, I think the the reaction, oh, the short answer is, in many cases, if you're crafting a compelling experience and you're sharing a compelling story, you really don't have to do a lot of work in the sense of audiences, fans, and consumers are automatically gravitating to things that they enjoy, and they are no longer passively consuming content. They're no longer happy, in many cases, to simply pay for a movie, buy a book, play a video game, and be done, as Esther talked about, they are responding and reacting in ways that often take the form of fan fiction or fan art, but we're also seeing other examples in the form of self-organized, live, real-time experiences, what are called live-action role-playing experiences. We've also seen fan bases, for example, around the Matrix, create an ARG, an alternate reality game, based on that. And these are examples where... The fans are actually gravitating to it because they, they want more. And the IP owners, the creators, the media companies who own the content have only produced a film or a book or a movie, and they're done. There's nothing else for the audiences to, to go back. There's no way for them to revisit that world. And so 
in many cases, these fans are already telling and talking back to the creative saying, we want more. We want to go back and revisit this world. And what transmedia storytelling can do if you couple it with a shared story world approach is it gives audiences a way to co-create value, basically co-create content with the collaboratives. And so reaching out to them and encouraging them to come back uh, to the world or experience this transmedia platform experience is actually pretty easy, but it all goes back to, and this is the point that I really want to end with, it all goes back to creating a compelling and satisfying story. Um, this is still transmedia storytelling where the emphasis is on telling an interesting story. And just because you've got a story split on five different platforms or just because you create a story and invite audiences to come in, if it's not interesting, if it's not engaging, they're not going to do that. It will ultimately fail. And so I think the best way to do that is to start with a compelling story. Well, and then the, the question that comes up is how do you handle the intellectual property that goes along with this? I mean, you have a, presumably a copyrighted story or movie or novel that, has, that an author has put out. And then we're going to create a shared story world where we allow users or, list, or fans to contribute to uh, creating a story world. Esther, what happens with the the IP at that point? Who becomes the owner? Do you have what do you do with derivative works? And does the Creative Commons license come into this at all? I think, um, well, using uh, Scott's approach here, the short answer is it really depends on how you, as the content creator, sets up that story world. So in the case of the Sun Microsystem Project, that was branded entertainment. That IP was owned by the brand who paid for it. What they did was they created uh, what we call sandbox areas or open-ended parts of the story that allowed the fan base to come in and sort of write around those question marks, if you will, as in what happened to that character or what led up to this scene. And we would allow them to create around that sort of context. Now, within our world that creation, um, anything you created belonged to the person who owned the IP, which was, in this case, the brand, Sun Microsystems. However, that's not the only way you could approach a story world build. There are a number of different options. Scott has an example of one with his own world where he's created a very creatively friendly environment, um, in which case people are invited to create and there are certain shared uh, creative commons, which I'll let Scott talk about. But there are a number of scenarios. I think the key point here is really understanding before you start the build of a shared story world and a shared story world community where you invite people to participate and create or co-create as the case may be, you need to understand what your end goal is. Well, do you plan to monetize this piece of um, creative work? And if so, how do you intend to incorporate some of the user-generated content that might fit within the integrity of the world that you created? And in that case, how do you set up systems that would evaluate that piece of uh, user-contributed content? Um, and how do they then get reimbursed if there is some sort of uh, commercialization happening off of that world? But I'll let Scott talk about his idea as well, because he has a different model um, from the one that I've taken with Sun. Scott, well, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Esther. Um, basically, what I've been exploring at my website, sharedstoryworlds.com, is an exercise in curating examples of these worlds where creatives are creating IP properties or creating these entertainment properties and then explicitly inviting audiences to come participate. 
Um, some cases it's it's fiction based, in some cases it's video based, in some cases it's more of a collaborative television show like Bar Karma. Um, but the other part of it is trying to look at best practices and seeing the different ways these worlds are being constructed, both from a creative uh, perspective, an operational standpoint, and a legal perspective. And what's interesting is that so far every world that I've curated at Shared Story Worlds has taken a radically different approach, which tells me that there's this a huge spectrum that's available to creatives when it comes to figuring out what they want their world to look like if, in fact, they do want to invite audiences to come co-create with them. If they do, they've got a huge amount of options to choose from, both from a creative standpoint, an operational and a legal standpoint, and the IP legal framework that basically dictates the terms under which audiences are able to come in and co-create. The creative ultimately has the say over what that looks like, too. They can decide how many rights they want to extend to the audience. They can say, well, I'm only going to scope out this part of the world. They can only play with these characters, or they can only play in this particular part of the IP, or they're limited to this part of the timeline. There are very many ways for the creative to scope and scale the actual amount of participation and contribution on the part of the audience so that the creative, particularly if it's a commercial endeavor, doesn't have to sacrifice any rights they don't want to. And I think that's important because most of the uh, mistaken perceptions that I come across when I start talking about these types of participatory IPs is the sense of I'm losing control. I, I no longer have control over that. And the reality is that the creative can decide from the beginning and retains total control over how much they want to open up. But at the same time, I think the reality is that we're facing things like digital piracy. We've got the internet which Corey Dr. Apley is referred to as the global 24-7 internet uh, copy machine. Um, we have more ways to remix the media around us as consumers, and in many cases, trying to figure out what the copyright law says I can and can't do with content that's pouring through the internet onto my computer is increasingly difficult for the average consumer. They just know that they want to go play uh, with the media around them. And I think finding ways for artists and audiences to build bridges together addresses a lot of these concerns that we're facing um, in this kind of perfect storm of media and consumer, uh, this, this landscape we're having with media and consumers kind of fighting over who owns what and what they can and can't do. You've, you've kind of addressed the, the very point I, w I was thinking as I was listening to Esther because I, I know that Esther is involved in in digital marketing programs and and I'm listening to her thinking that if I'm a a fortune 500 company I I'm I IP is one of my concerns here but just sort of maintaining control over my brand seems to be a concern as well if if you're putting the brand out to some sort of a, a shared storytelling kind of a environment uh or or a more collaborative uh, environment uh how do you how do you main, maintain control uh, of the, of the messaging and the brand that you want to be putting out there. Well, I think there's that's a big struggle that goes deeper than just transmedia storytelling. I think this goes back into the whole world of social media and the entry sure. point of social media into um, how it sort of turned the tables, right? Because it used to be that as a brand, I could go out there and say, "This is my story, and I'm going to push this content out to you along with the message." But with the wide adoption of social media and people having 
or becoming accustomed to having a voice and having a say as to how they want to interact with the brand and what they want the brand to communicate, um, we've changed that dynamic. And so brands are now still, even seven years into social media being, you know, widespread um, and used in the market, you still have brands struggling with, well, how do I control my brand story and my brand message? And the bottom line is you can't. Your brand no longer belongs to you. You may be able to still play out content and have interactions that support sort of the attributes and the ethos of your company. However, a lot of the storytelling that happens around your company is now being put into the hands of your customers because it's how they interact with your brand and how they internalize that experience and put it back out in their story of their interaction with the brand. And so that all influences the total outward perception of what that brand uh, story becomes because it's influenced by the number of people who have touched it and their experiences with it. So the the short answer is in a transmedia storytelling environment, brands have to accept that to some degree they are not going to be able to control that message. Um, in terms of violation and use of assets, when we put our assets out there for our audiences to remix, there is always and will always be a curation system so that we can see all the assets being put out. If it violates the brand or presents the brand in a way that's very um, uh, unbecoming or slanderous or something that could be considered libelous, then that, that information gets pulled. But I think that also goes back to understanding what your community strategy is going to be when you build these story world communities. And that all falls under the terms of service. You indicate what your expectations are. You're invited to play. You're invited to co-create with us. We give you assets to play with. But please understand that these assets come with roles. And if these roles are violated under these terms of service or terms of engagement, we have the right to remove this content. Oh, very good. We need to, we need to take a short break. Uh, we are going to be back in just a few moments with more on uh, the uh, IP issues, branding issues, and other issues associated with uh, Story World Communities and Transmedia. So stay with us. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the benefits of cloud computing. Now, what do you think the single biggest benefit to cloud computing is? In talking to our customers recently uh, about that very question, I was surprised with what came back with as, as a really resounding response, and that was that it's the convenience and the freedom that cloud computing affords them the ability to get their work done from anywhere whether it's at their office at the courthouse at home or even if they're on vacation they're able to get their work done where and when they need to get it done Uh, the mobile aspect of things is also increasingly important with cloud-based software you can access your data and software from your iphone or your ipad uh, your blackberry uh, and other mobile devices so for the uh, lawyers that are on the move which is an increasing Uh, proportion of lawyers, that's a a really key benefit as well. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if anyone wants additional information on Clio, they can feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? 
Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter. LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial playing in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Our guests today are Esther Lim and Scott Walker, and we're talking about transmedia and story world communities. And before the break, we were talking about some intellectual property rights. Scott, what happens in terms of revenue sharing uh, with people that help create these story worlds? Uh, there's, a, there's a simple two-word answer that will address every single situation, and, and that's this. <laughs> It depends. It basically boils down to what the creative wants to do. It boils down to the experience they want to create for the audience. And it also is reflective of the limitations and the resources available to the creative. What kind of a budget are they dealing with? How many people can they bring onto the team, etc. And based on all of those factors, uh, the creative sits down and decides, this is the kind of, of experience that I want to create, and then decides from a revenue standpoint, if, in fact, there is a revenue component, there doesn't need to be, um, even in a commercial IP, there doesn't need to be any kind of a revenue-sharing component happening with audiences, although, uh, obviously, that would have a higher appeal than one that doesn't. Um, for a creative who's trying to gain some exposure, gain awareness, create something new, be a little innovative, inviting fans to come participate and play in their sandbox and find a way to make money is a, is a, is a, is an appealing option. And we're seeing more examples of that happening. Uh, Empire State was the first offering to come out of Angry Robot Books' World Builder project. World Builder is an attempt to take traditional content pushed through the publishing industry, but have it come out the other side with an open invitation for audiences to come play. And there's actually an invitation for audiences to submit fiction back to them. As I understand it, I can't confirm this, but as I understand it, I believe contributors will be paid market rates for their works, which will then be bundled up in anthologies and sold commercially. So we're seeing more examples of this happening inside media companies. But again, it, it all depends on the experience and the world and, and the creative or the media owner, you know, what they want to do. It depends on what they, um, how they want that to work. Now, having said that, there's this huge spectrum. Um, it can be very black and white. It can be very straightforward as far as who gets what money, and then it can be really complicated. You can have, um, as you might imagine, uh, a Gordian knot of copyright entanglement trying to, fig- trying to figure out, well, if fan A can remix fan B's character, and fan A can take fan, B- fan B's character and write a whole new story, you know, who gets the money there? And again, it depends. The creative can decide how much money gets shared and under what conditions. I opt for simple. I opt for black and white versus gray. 
I opt for simplicity over complexity, if at all possible, even if it doesn't ideally give you the system that you're looking for, because when you're inviting audiences in, the last thing you want to inject is an additional layer of complexity and confusion. As Esther talked about, you know, you have to set the ground rules. You have to understand these are the terms of service and use if you want to complain in this shared sandbox. If you don't communicate that clearly, you're just going to cause problems down the road for yourself. So uh, my answer to you is it depends. <laughs> Sounds like a good lawyer's answer. Esther, can you give us a <laughs> little bit of uh, background about South by Southwest? I'm, I don't know that many of our listeners have heard of this conference before. It's been going on for a good long time and probably about time they find out about it. Well, the conference is actually started out very grassroots, a uh, group of people with a shared interest around interactive movie and film, and uh, it was a place for people to explore and to talk about new ways of doing things, both on an interactive platform, um, then moving into film and music. But as interactivity has grown just because of the number of uh, devices that are out there, access to the internet, the new apps that are being developed, and as Scott mentioned earlier, this proliferation of content um, creation tools. You know, it's really changed a lot of the ways in which we as consumers interact with any type of content out there today. And so as that sort of user behavior has changed over time, the event itself has also changed to reflect sort of what's coming up. And now the event is really known for um, really marking out what's the future of interaction? What's the future of music and movies? And um, what does that look like from a technology standpoint, from a social standpoint? So oftentimes a lot of brands will attend uh, South by Southwest as well as creators and designers and technologists uh, to look at what's out there, what's new, and how can we build on that to create even better experiences with the content that, that we're producing? And how do we get that mind share? So it started out as a creator's event. It's now expanded into a creator and brand event because brands have now started to recognize that content is very important. I think you mentioned it earlier, Craig. Um, social media marketing anymore is about the quality of content that you put out that has the ability to attract the right kinds of people that you want as customers and keep them engaged so that you can continue to uh, reinforce your brand story, get your message out there, stay top of mind for these individuals um, in their day-to-day -day interactions. And since content has become such a critical part of keeping people engaged online or throughout any type of digital content, a lot of brands have recognized it's time to go down there and really see what's going on and see what opportunities we can start to consider for our future moving forward. And this is true for content creators on the indie level as well as on the big studio level. I just wanted to ask to follow up on that. I know that you're, you, the three of you are doing this program. I, I think it's set for Sunday, 3.30. Uh, the title of the program is The Rise of Co-Created Story World Communities. And, and Esther, I, according to the write-up, you're, you're the moderator of this. So I, I wanted to ask you, Esther, what, what are you going to ask Craig? <laughs> well, see, I had a very specific um, role or intent in mind when I invited Craig because I think this is very new territory, this idea of asking people to co-create with you. It is new and it is old. So it's old in that we've been doing it for a long time. We've just never labeled it or sanctioned it. And certainly the idea of money coming into it hasn't been as widely practiced. I think as we move more into a content generation society and we start to realize that we have the capability and the potential to be able to make money or commercialize these properties, the question becomes even more convoluted in terms of, okay, who owns the rights? And having been 
a content creator and being a content creator for big brands, for branded entertainment, I know this issue continuously comes up. And at some point, I think the questions are going to come to the fact of, you know, your creators are going to want to have a share some way, somehow, especially if the product goes massively commercial and there's a lot of money on the table to be made. Um, and I think that the copyright issues are going to come up, but I also think the the ways that we can um, make money off of that content, those models are going to come up. So part of inviting Craig was to help have him sort of discuss what are the things that we don't consider as part of commercializing properties? Where are the rights? How do we not leave ourselves to exposure? How do we create business models that might be equitable and what might we look at that exists today that we might be able to build from? So for example, would we look at gaming and utilize a virtual gaming or uh, premium download sort of model where you pay per download. So maybe every story arc that you create as a creator has a rev share model with the originators, and then the community creator gets a piece of that. Um, maybe it, they own all of the revenue rights to a, a specific piece of downloadable content that they created specifically around a sub-character. I don't know. Like, we don't have answers to these, but I do know it will be a, a larger and more pressing question as um, the years go by and more people become content creators in conjunction with the professional ones. Well, Craig, you have answers, I'm sure. Well, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough it's a tough question, series of questions to answer because as you probably understand yourself, Bob, there is really no methodology within the copyright law to deal with uh, co-created uh, and ever-changing derivative works on derivative works on derivative works. I mean, generally the law is, as, as you know, that copyright is owned by the person or persons that create the, the, uh, the property. It, it, it then gets registered and we have a defined property. I mean, you write a book or you create a movie or you, you, whatever it is that you do, create a game and then you submit it to the copyright office and it's copyrighted. But then what happens with the changes that get made to it and by different people and by the agreements that are reached. So there really is at this point, uh, what this highlights to me is that there needs to be an overhaul of the copyright laws to address this new developing and ever changing technology because the, the, the current set of copyright laws just aren't designed to handle it. And once money starts to get involved, and that's the reason I asked Scott about the revenue share uh, issue is that people are going to say, well, you know, I helped contribute to this and I want to get paid. And that's, again, why you have terms of use and end-user license agreements and other types of rules going into this. But heaven help the person that creates a story world that doesn't address the legal aspects, that doesn't have a term of use a series of, of agreements that are reached. You just come play in the sandbox and create, and then afterward, everyone's left with you know potentially a very successful story that's making a lot of money but no ability to be able to divide up the money among those who participated in creating it it's a well, tough well, series of questions and appropriately it will have to be continued to a, another platform because we're out of time today uh with this show but uh you guys are all going to be able to talk about this uh, uh sunday uh, march 11th uh at uh, South by Southwest. But I know that before we, we do wrap up today, we did want to give uh, each of our guests an opportunity to share their kind of closing thoughts on this topic and also let our listeners know how best to follow up with them. So uh, Esther, could we start with you? Sure. So my closing thought on this is I think we're in a really exciting space now. I, I think it's often been referred to as the wild, wild west. And I think that the models that we start to frame out today will have a very lasting impact on how we move forward in the future in terms of protecting our own copyright. 
and creating a, a very equitable revenue model that uh, that doesn't really take advantage that doesn't take advantage of the community, but actually involves the community in a very fair way. Um, for following up with me in the future, I can best be reached through my Twitter handle at geekgirl g e e k g r l or at George P Johnson, and that email is Esther e s t h e r dot lim l i m at g p j dot com. Thank you for inviting me today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Scott. Um, I just, for me personally, what drives me passionately about shared store worlds is this idea that I firmly believe, which is that. Audiences, consumers, fans are perfectly willing and perfectly capable sources of competence, that they are able to collaborate and co-create with creatives and create something magical. And it just really is as simple as the creative inviting them in and allowing them to do so. And wonderful things can happen once that allows, once you allow it to happen. For as far as contact information goes, the best way to get all of that about me is go to my website, which is Meta Scott M E T A S C O T T dot com. My contact links to my company, all of my online projects, my blog, everything is there. Metascott.com. And thank you very much, gentlemen. Well, thank you Thanks very so. much for participating today. We we very much appreciate both you, uh, Scott and Esther, being present and talking with us about this kind of emerging issue, at least in the legal industry. Uh, it's although it's been a while, around a while for within the media industry. So, Bob, uh, we want to remind our listeners they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center, and you can also find all of our Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. And we'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. Yeah, thanks a lot, Craig. You'll have to fill us all in next week on, on how it goes down there. We'll do that. We'll see you next week. Talk to you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.